there are people in this country who are like, well, so what if we call it the Chinese virus and Kung flu? It came from China. Either they don't understand or don't want to understand that the rhetoric that was attached to that has created just awful violence and fear. I'm Kate Lundquist, and I love to celebrate humanity and unique perspectives from all walks of life. Listen in, learn, and grow as my friends and I share about our rides on life's crazy roller coaster. Welcome to Kate Had Me Meet. I am so excited for you guys to meet Mark. Mark Hagland has been a mentor to me for years. I just, I'll never forget when I first started writing about race and really processing my perspective in it all as a white woman. I shared my writing with his group, Transracial Adoption Perspectives, and to get his positive feedback about it, uh, when I was so nervous, he was so generous with me and, and just really encouraged me in a way that was super special and memorable. I get a little choked up even thinking about it those years ago now. And with everything going on with the Atlanta shootings and just the rise in racism and violence against people of color, specifically in the Asian community this past year, I just felt like a conversation with Mark would be so um, just beneficial for the world to hear. And, and he agreed to it last minute. I have other interviews that are ready to be broadcast, but, but I just feel like Mark's story and just his perspectives and insights and wisdom is really what we need to hear now. So thank you to Mark for agreeing to chat with me just kind of at the drop of a hat and to just be very open and vulnerable um, with everybody. Super honest. You guys get ready. Enjoy this opportunity to meet somebody very special. Everybody, here's Mark. We decided that we were going to create a group where we sat in complexity and actually talked about issues and try to create uh, an environment of learning and support, not in the sense of support group, but support in the sense of an, a learning group. And that's what we did. And, and uh, it's been a great experience. I've, I've gained many blessings from it. Well, for one thing, I got fluent Spanish and I'm studying Danish. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Did it start as a, as a group for just adoptees? No, okay. originally the first day, like the first hour of the first day, I thought we would be balanced between adoptees and adoptive parents. Well, inevitably what happened was within a few days we were flooded with parents, like, like it was like a deluge, like hundreds and hundreds. And we're like, oh my gosh, okay. And what we ultimately did, and one thing, one thing we can pat ourselves slightly on the back yeah. for was we created the concept of privileged voices because what happened early on, we learned, you know, every everything in life involves stumbles at the beginning, right? Like you mm -hmm. learn. This is like yeah. if you if you read about the history of the first cars and the first phones and the first planes, I mean it's all stumbles. And so at the beginning we and well, this wasn't even so much a stumble. It was just a learning. We're like, oh my gosh, like the white mom voices were just completely overwhelming 
right? So we came up with the idea of privileged voices and said, now, hang on, ladies, because as you know, these groups are 90% women in terms of activity. And, you know, one uh, adoptee would say something and like, literally like 80 white women would just like wash over that person. And so we learned and Mm -hmm. we've created a balance through rules and through norms that it took a long time to create that culture because at first, and not to offend anyone, but white women don't like to have to sit back and be told to be silent for a little Mm -hmm. tiny bit, right? Like, you know, immediately, if someone said something even slightly challenging or just even that made them uncomfortable, it would be like 35, well, not a, not me and wrong way, right? <laughs> would be like, yeah. okay, okay. It's like, you know, time out, right? <laughs> so so we, we just, we learned by norms, you know, we, by creating norms through experience and then creating norms and then um, just refining that experience. And we've created a nice, I think a nice atmosphere. I mean, a lot of people still, call us angry, hostile, mean, nasty, and ugly, but, um, (laughs) you know, I, I I think the testament is that we have survived this long, people still want to come to us, and they're learning, and I will say, too, adoptees are on their journeys and are learning, too. Many adoptees have never had anywhere to evolve their thinking. Yeah. You know, they're totally in isolation, uh, which is very painful. And, and that's, we'll talk a little bit about that tonight because right now there are a lot of Asian adoptees who are like, oh, I really am not white, right? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a painful time for many people. So yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the group because it has over 6,000 people in it, right? Yeah. And it is for kind of everybody in the triad however the the privileged voices being yeah. the adoptees and what about birth moms birth we do you know we are very much open to birth parents now mm-hmm. here's what we've learned and i have spoken offline to birth parents yeah um most birth parents are not um in a place in their hearts and minds where they're able to um, sit comfortably in that yeah. setting with the rest of the constellation, especially early on. I, years ago, met, and of course, I, I'm going to keep all these names anonymous. Mm-hmm. I met a wonderful birth mom, and I met her birth son, the son that she had relinquished 35 years earlier, at a conference. I mean, they had been in union for years. And she said, oh my gosh, you know, and she, at the time I met her, she was late fifties, maybe almost 60. Mm -hmm. And she said, I could never have been in a group like that when, you know, within a few years after relinquishing, it would have been far too triggering. So we welcome birth parents. We consider them to be privileged voices. Mm -hmm. We do consider adoptees to be the most privileged voices. And that's, you know, it's so funny when you create a hierarchy, immediately people are like defensive, like, well, why is this person sitting above me? And, but, and it, it's purely because in the constellation, it's a group dedicated to learning and we want people to hear 
from adult transracial adoptees the most. Now, we definitely welcome birth parents' voices. Um, we have some, not a lot, most lurk, which is fine. Everyone's mm -hmm. welcome to lurk. Most don't feel comfortable speaking out. And we, we try to make it as comfortable as possible. There is, there can be complexity in the, you know, we talk about the complexity in the interactions between birth parent, I mean, uh, adoptive parents and adult adoptees. But there's a lot of complexity in the interactions between birth parents and adoptees too. Yeah. And many adoptees who are in birth family reunion have very complex relationships with their birth parents. So everything's complex, but we do welcome birth parents and we do consider them a type of privileged voice. That's great. When, you, when you're in the, these groups such as yours, you realize so much of what you say or think or do is highly offensive or that word triggering or dismissive. And, and to see that be kind of corrected and named is very, very educational. And, you know, it'll say, it'll even say in a post, like, I would like to hear from other black adoptees or other Asian adoptees. And then all the white moms think they can say, oh, I know what you should do. And then right away, somebody says, oh, excuse me. Like, no, you are yeah. not allowed. Like, that is not okay. Well, and isn't that interesting because it reflects how our society works, right? Like there are rarely situations in which people of color are given the floor, truly given the floor to speak. And when they are immediately, white people need to rush in. And in the adoption world, um, there's context for this. You know, 30 years ago, no one heard from adoptee voices. Mm -hmm. And it's been in the past 20 to 25 years that the adoptee voices have emerged, uh, partly because we're older now. And um, it's really been, um, so for example, I've participated for nearly 20 years now in the Con Conference, which is focused on Korean adoption, but we welcome all people. But the first, I, I joined them in their third year, I believe it was. And the first couple of years I heard were very rocky because you literally had adoptive parents and adult adoptees sitting in the same room. And it got somewhat heated from what I heard. And then they learned from that. And when we created TAP and its predecessor, I modeled what we were doing and are doing on what I learned from the Con Conference. So we had a model. And what is interesting to me, you know, the Con Conference is live. Well, this year it'll be virtual because of COVID. But um, in those situations too, in live in-person situations, it's very hard for the white parents to actually listen to the adoptees. You can see them like there'll be a discussion, you'll be talking about whatever and, and an adoptee will start speaking and immediately there will be like 10 raised hands and people like leaning forward and they're, they're on the verge of set, right? And it's like, it's hard to do that because in the adoption world, parents have always had the dominant voice. And that's really only evolved forward 
uh, in the last 20 years and specifically in about the last 10 to 15 since there, since we've been on Facebook and have had social media that have really helped evolve this forward. Really appreciated um, being able to refer adult adoptees to the group mm-hmm. and just really saying like, this is a space for you. And um, specifically the couple of friends that I'm thinking about off the top of my head, just have a lot of heaviness and hurt, pain that almost nobody in their upbringing could understand. You know, yeah, that narrative yeah. of you're so lucky or you should be thankful, you should be grateful. Um, and just really having to be a person of color in a very, very white world and and be with parents who just don't seem to appreciate uh, the, 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 the trauma, the, yeah. the feeling of not belonging. Yeah. Well, if may, may I add a little bit of a few layers to that? Yeah. So that's all correct. And then the other thing that happens and has happened to me for 60 years is um, there is this phenomenon um, that I call the imposition of the demand for the reflexive expression of gratitude on the part of adoptees. So when I meet people, you know, strangers, you know, these like airport conversations and things like that, the moment, you know, they might ask about my background and the moment I tell them that I'm an adult transracial adoptee, immediately it comes out, you know, oh, you're so lucky. You must be so grateful. Your parents saved you. And adoptees feel very silenced by that. Uh, Even those of us like me who had really great parents, I, even though I had great parents and I actually am grateful to them, it still feels oppressive to have strangers immediately demand that I express gratitude, right? Because they don't know anything about my family. And I know many adoptees who are actually abused and for them, it's far worse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But most of all, the other layer behind this is the infantilization of adoptees. No matter how old we get, we're still seen as children. The moment that our adoptee um, identity comes up uh, in conversation and in dialogue, we're the child. And so it's kind of ironic for me because I'm actually older than most of the parents who are in our groups. And yet the moment we talk about adoption and talk about the adoptee experience, a weird thing happens where it's like I'm a child. Well, no, I'm actually an adult talking about my childhood experience. It's, it's a little bit, I remember recently reading an interview with someone who was a child star, right? And they're in their 30s now, but people still think of them when they were, as when they were 10. It's like that, right? Like you're always 10 or something. Maybe even like a condescending spirit down to you or like, I, yeah, yeah I, that's it's so interesting. Thank you. It that. is. It's a, it's a dynamic that I've seen replicate itself in many forums. And so uh, it, it's there, it's out there. Mm-hmm. So what what is your adoption story that you're willing to share? Sure. Well, and I don't want it to be too long or to dominate our conversation. So I was adopted 
pretty much at birth along with my twin brother from South Korea, but we were very ill. So they couldn't bring us over right away. We came over when we were eight months old. At that time, I was born in 1960 and came over in early 61. At that time, air travel was very different. Uh, it, the four full flights to get from Seoul to Chicago where my parents picked me up and drove us to Milwaukee where I grew up. So it, we were too ill to travel for eight months. Um, we came over to the United States. I was raised by uh, white American parents. Uh, my father was Norwegian American and my mother's German American. Um, and they've been deceased for years, but uh, we grew up in Milwaukee. We, we had a really loving and wonderful family, but um, as you've seen me talk about in TAP many times, you know, growing up in near total whiteness was still completely devastating. And I experienced racism and it took me many years to figure everything out. So that's part of what drives my sense of mission in the groups is that I do not want the youngest adoptees to go through what I did. And I try, I'll, I'll add a little note or addendum to that. When I'm sitting in these groups, I'm sitting in these groups with adoptees who have had the full spectrum of experiences. Some had loving parents as I did Others had horribly abusive parents. So I try to frame everything very carefully because I don't want other, other adoptees. But one point that I do purposefully make over and over is that even though I had loving parents, I was still devastated as a child of color growing up in whiteness by racism. So that really helps drive my sense of mission to get white adoptive parents to move into as much racial diversity as possible with mirrors of their child's specific race and of all races of color. Both of those things are important. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, um, I just, um, I just don't know how I'll ever be able to thank you enough for what, uh -huh you have put out in that group of, <laughs> I, I don't, I just haven't, I, I know I've said it to you before, but I look back at where I used to live and I thought it would be enough. I thought that because it was a small town and that everybody knew my kids, that they were safe. I just, now I look back and I just think, how dare me, <laughs> how dare myself? I feel very much, I just can't believe that I ever thought that that would ever work out okay. Because it seems dangerous at this point. Is that well, too you know, old to say it feels dangerous? Yeah, well, first of all, you have to forgive yourself, but <laughs> what you didn't know. But secondly, I mean, the, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but you're white. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, white people in our society you know, this is why I'm constantly recommending Robin DiAngelo and White Fragility. Yes. She explains everything so amazingly. White people who are raised in whiteness through no fault of their own, there are like a zillion things they don't know. Yeah. And so when they adopt children of color, they don't know those things. 
And um, again, that speaks to my sense of mission because I feel so strongly that what I can do and what others can do, I certainly want to facilitate the voices of all adoptees, but what we can do is to share our experiences and our perspective based on our lived experiences. We can share our perspectives to educate. So when I share in the groups, I absolutely, you know, I, I you've seen me do this. When I share a post, I say, I do not want expressions of sorrow or pity or anything like that. I actually kind of find that really icky. I. I share so that my experience can be uh, a help and a guide to parents like yourself. Um, I talk about how it was clear to me when I was growing up, as I like to joke, being non-white was a capital crime, but there was nothing I could do about that. I couldn't become white. and. The feeling, well, first of all, I developed really a pretty horrific physical self-image and it really, I just turned 60 last year. I probably, it's probably only been in the, about the last two or three years that I've begun to accept how I look. Wow. You know, yeah. And so um, I want your children, your, you know, collective, like the children of all the parents in the groups, to not experience that. What I want people to understand is that some of what I experience can't ever really be fixed. I mean, I'm fine, right? And I have a great life. But there are things that I'll never completely fix, and I just have to accept that. So it's like the not okay, okay thing. So what you didn't know, you just didn't know. And 95% of white adoptive parents come into this in a state of unknowing. I'm not surprised, you know, but here's the thing. Here's the good news. It's the year 2021. <laughs> when my parents adopted me and my twin brother, there was nothing. You know, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. There were no books, there, were, there, were, there was nothing. They basically were very intuitive. My mother was an incredibly emotionally intelligent person. Mm. She wasn't formally educated at all. She had this unbelievable emotional intelligence and they somehow figured out a fair amount of stuff with literally no guidance. Now you've got books, and blogs and podcasts and uh, documentaries and videos and um, you know even poetry and art and music created by adult transracial adoptees and it's amazing. I mean, my con contributions have been tiny. It's what's fabulous now is the my fellow adult transracial adoptees are like just exploding with creativity. And so therefore, there's no excuse at this point in 2021, right? Like mm -hmm. white adopted, you can literally Google. Yeah. Use yeah. the Google, as they say, right? And you can literally 
Google um, something like, you know, what adoptees want parents to know about transracial adoption, you'll come up with hundreds yeah. of yeah. links to things. And so I feel that now adoptive parents are in the opposite situation my parents in, where my parents had nothing had to, and had to figure it all out for themselves and somehow figured out a fair amount. They, they did amazingly well. Now, like literally just Google, <laughs> you, can, you can learn. And, and so therefore you, the collective you, not just you, Kate, because I know you've been doing a great job with this, <laughs> but the collective you need to educate yourselves, right? Like there is no longer an excuse. Um, the I don't know excuse doesn't just doesn't work anymore. I had no idea. It seems like your parents probably were pretty innocently ignorant. And there's a sense of that too with my, you know, I was innocently ignorant to a point. And then there comes a point where you are like purposefully ignorant. Like you turn a blind eye to the truth because it's hard and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And we see, and because the information is everywhere now. Well, and that's where the white fragility and the adoptive parent fragility come in because um, it's very hard, you know, and I'm a, I'm a parent myself, uh, biological to my daughter. And I know that all parents want the easy button, right? <laughs> They're crying out for the easy button. Mm -hmm. But the reality, I have a little joke. I like to say, you know, like in these classic women's magazines, like Women's Day and all these, um, there's always um, these little tips for parents, right? And it's really directed at moms because these are women's magazines. And the classic is top 10 summer skincare tips for your family. Hmm. And that's what white transracially adopted parents would like, <laughs> top 10 summer skincare tips, the equivalent thereof. And unfortunately, there's no equivalent thereof right? Like this is a lifelong journey and it requires that parents sit in discomfort and that they commit to a learning journey. And a lot of parents simply won't do that. The, I always say, you know, the, the parents who most need our group and groups will never join them. Mm -hmm. And that's the sad thing in 2021. There are, I, I hear of things all the time and there are white parents who are raising their children, although as though it's 1961 when I arrived. I mean, literally 60 years ago. And like I say, I, I absolved my parents of everything because there was, there was nothing. No one could tell them anything. No one knew anything. Mm -hmm. But now people know things. You, can't, you just can't excuse yourself any longer by saying, I didn't know. And I think per what you said about two different kinds of ignorance or unknowing, um, a lot of white adoptive parents are pretty darn fragile. They don't want to be, and I think a part of that has to do with the fact that it's one thing to raise your own biological child. And of course, all parenting is challenging, but when you're raising a child whose lived experience is going to be completely different from yours, I suppose that is scary in a way, right? And I think when white transracially adopted parents have that moment of realization, um, the Japanese have a great word, satori, sudden revelation. When they have that epiphany, they're like, 
oh my gosh, <laughs> right? It's it, it's it can be devastating to think about. So how did you come to identify as a Korean man, Korea, correct? Yeah, I was born in Korea. I mean, it's I've got more layers than a sack of onions. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, part of it. Okay, let me see if I can explain this. There are cultures that are far more open than Korean culture. And I mean that both in terms of domestic and international cultures, right? Like I have numerous friends who are black or black biracial in the United States and black culture is open enough in the United States that you can find your way in. Mm -hmm. Um, Sociologists talk about high barrier and low barrier cultures. So the East Asian cultures are exceptionally high barrier cultures. Entry into those cultures requires perfect linguistic ability, requires adhering to norms that are extremely high and stringent, and they're very conformist. So what I necessarily had to develop was a sense of identity that's rather complex. Mm -hmm. So when people ask me what I am, I tell them I'm Asian American. I never say Korean American. I am genetically Korean. I am ethnically Korean. But Korean American usually connotes some connection with the Korean American community. I I don't really have any. I don't really follow any Korean norms um, except for eating kimchi that I'm devoted to that. Um, But I, because Korean culture and Korean American culture are both high barrier cultures, I've had to create an identity that suits me. And so my identity is very complex. It's layered. Uh, I'm an American. I'm an Asian man. I'm an Asian American. I am genetically Korean, Mm -hmm. um, but I'll never really be accepted by culturally Korean Koreans. And so I'm very careful how I identify. And I've also, like many Korean adoptees, experienced a lot of, I don't know if I can call it direct rejection. It's not hostile rejection. It's more like absolute bafflement. And when, now I have to make a distinction among generations. It's the first generation Korean Americans and sometimes the second generation who are the toughest to work with and integrate with. By the time we get to third generation, they're very Americanized and they're also very accepting, but they're also not really, uh, they themselves are not that strongly connected to traditional culture or Korean culture in South Korea. So um, they themselves also have issues. And when they go to visit South Korea, they also get othered. So um, does that make any sense or was I just- well, it's like just you feel so far removed from the culture, but or it almost sounds like, you know, first or second generation, they feel like they're like the originals, like mm-hmm. they have like the closest yeah. ties yeah. and, um, and you. And I'll never, I'll never think like a Korean. Okay. Um, I grew up in this country. East Asian, the East Asian cultures really are different. They're really different from here. And I could give you many examples and tell you many stories, but the bottom line is that even if I were to learn the language fluently, um, no, I still wouldn't be accepted basically. And I've, I've had to accept that. Uh, a lot of 
international adoptees are devastated when they realize mm -hmm. that their birth cultures aren't accepting of them. Yeah. And there's a spectrum. Some birth cultures, like for example, from what I've heard from Ethiopian adoptees, Ethiopians are more open and they will accept you on a, a level that Koreans won't. So it depends on the culture and it depends on how you interact with the culture too, you know? Um, but there are Korean adoptees who were raised in the United States and Europe who go over there and live and it's just really hard. Yeah. They, they, they want to fit in, but they just don't. They, they don't fit in any more than you would. And in a weird way, like if you went to South Korea to visit just as a tourist and you learned a few basic phrases like, please, thank you, hello, how are you? They would fall all over themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, white woman, white American woman, learn Korean. And they would be so... Um, congratulatory towards you. But for us adoptees, it's like, why the heck don't you speak Korean? And what's wrong with you? You don't think Korean and you don't dress Korean. You don't act Korean. So I'll always be an outsider. Um, some people say we're inside outsiders or outside insiders, if that makes any sense. And that's kind of, that's what we'll always be. And I've had to come to accept that. I, I What I've created for myself is... I guess I would call, and I, I hope this doesn't sound pretentious, but kind of an international adoptee, uh, international identity. I'm American. I have a lot of influences from Europe and some from Latin America, mm -hmm. a few from Asia, but I don't feel limited by where I grew up. Because right. in Wisconsin, I, I would say if you could pick like the most Midwestern type place to grow up, I mean, Minnesota, Wisconsin, it's yeah. not exactly known for diversity i mean minnesota no. getting there but i mean just depends on what part of the state i suppose well i will say where i grew up which is milwaukee has changed in 60 years but i was growing up in the 60s and 70s on the south side of milwaukee with a lot of german americans german and polish americans and it was pretty northern european ethnic you know and um I was a complete Martian, a complete alien. And I knew, I, I always say I had two dreams and I, as a child, I failed at one and succeeded at the other. The first was to be like everyone else and I completely failed, oh my gosh. And the second one was to escape and I succeeded. So <laughs> that's what happened. Oh, I can only imagine though the mental turmoil, emotional turmoil, I'm not sure you can help me define it, but to kind of feel like you don't belong at all in where you grew up and and then to just and know you're an Asian man, but then also feel somewhat closed off from that community as well. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, first of all, that's the, that's the existential um, situation of the international adoptee. You know, all the international adoptees I know have had that experience. And when I say international adoptee, I don't just mean like Korean children growing up in the United States. You know, like when I was in Spain in 2017, I met a Bolivian Belgian and I've interacted with Peruvian British people and Colombian Norwegians and Korean Swedes and Chinese Spaniards. And what is amazing is how similar our experiences are. Mm -hmm. we, we don't fit in. 
we try to find some space that makes sense for us, but uh, it's a lifelong journey. I'm very, I'm incredibly blessed and fortunate. I was able to navigate myself towards a life that worked for me. You know, I live on the north side of Chicago. It's incredibly diverse and cosmopolitan. It suits me in every way. So I'm very fortunate, but some of the adoptees who grew up in intense whiteness, they get stuck and that's really unfortunate. And they, they can be very, very unhappy actually. You know, I mean, it's, it's very sad actually. And then, you know, especially in the Asian community right now, just with the recent, I mean, the facts are without getting any political opinions in it, which you're welcome to share, but you know, it's just all things aside, facts are facts and that the rise in racism being demonstrated and shown against people of color, people in the Asian community yeah. has been snowballing yeah. into this huge problem. What yeah. does that, what has that looked like for you and how does it, how has it changed and morphed over time? If so, yeah. may I be candid? Please. Anything okay. So first of all, one thing, one thing that people have to understand is that anti-Asian violence yeah. goes back to the beginning of Asians' appearance in America. Um, there's so much in history that we don't learn and are whitewashed, literally, and cleansed, uh, you know, junior high and high school history books, right? So the first Asians in America were Chinese men, specifically, brought over to work on the railroads, and some came over during the gold rush. And um, they were lynched regularly. And, you know, and of course, I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely stand in solidarity with my black brothers and sisters who endured just like unbelievable Mm -hmm. oppression and have endured oppression for 400 years. What people don't know is that Asians also endured a fair amount of oppression from the beginning. Now, there have been waves of anti-Asian hysteria. Um, I was in graduate journalism school when I learned about the Japanese internments in World War II. Now that's better known. In 1981, most white Americans didn't even know that it had happened, who hadn't lived through it. Anyway, fast forwarding, you know, the coronavirus pandemic has been just devastating for us. And by the way, it's happened in Europe too. Um, I have a Korean adoptee friend in France who has been verbally assaulted, you know, as well. Um, but, you know, we, we had a president who for an entire year essentially put a target of, on our collective backs. And there are people in this country, in parentheses, white people, who are like, well, so what if we call it the Chinese virus and Kung flu? It came from China. Either they don't understand or don't want to understand that the rhetoric that was attached to that has created just awful violence and fear. People are literally going into Chinatowns in San Francisco and New York and you know, scoping out a sidewalk or a street and looking for little old ladies and little old men to knock down 
and some have been killed because you know they hit their heads on the concrete and then they're dead. People are spitting on Asians. What's different, and you know, every I decry every form of racism, every form of bigotry. What's unique to Asians and Asian presenting people is the foreigner aspect. We've always been the foreigners. You know, and I've had wonderful dialogues with all of my friends of color because the black people have been horrifically oppressed in this country and Latinos as well and Native Americans. And each group has endured some specific types of oppression that's, that have been unique to them. For Asians, it's the perpetual foreigner and the yellow peril. If you Google yellow peril, you will, I mean, it's shocking what you'll find. There have been waves of anti-Asian sentiment. So what's happened in the past year isn't unique, but here we are in a 24 seven news media cycle and we've got senior politicians from one party demonizing uh, a visibly different group. You know, we're, you can see that I'm Asian. And so to me, what's astonishing is when people want to deny that there could be a racial component to the mass murder last week in Atlanta. And I posted on my Facebook page about this and also in our groups, I'm just astonished by the binary simplistic thinking that <clears throat> these murders had to either be racial or misogynistic or related to sexuality or related to the gun culture or related to, um, uh, you know, distorted, disorganized thinking around sex or they were all of those things. Um, and you look at the women who were killed, they, we, we have this idea somehow, some people do, you know, that all Asian Americans are, you know, like doctors now, um, doctors who play the piano and violin. Mm -hmm. And the reality is many of these, one really sad element, you know, four of these women, it took like three days to identify them because they had to call over to South Korea and find people who could do a positive ID on them. So these are um, women, Im immigrant women of color of extremely modest means. They're just trying to make it, right? They're, they're making $8 an hour or you know whatever it is. Already vulnerable. Already very vulnerable. And they're working in an area that has been sexualized regardless as to whether what they provide has any sexual element or tint to it at all. If you look uh, at another horrible thing, um, I won't do it, but if you go online and you type in yellow fever or Asian woman fetish or something like that, mm -hmm. you will instantly just, it's horrifying what's out there. Mm -hmm. And so you have this combination of you have this situation in which this individual, and of course, we don't know much about him at all, but he goes in there, he apparently had patronized these salons or a couple of them. And he told the authorities that he needed to extinguish his sex addiction. 
So first of all, all of course, he does it by killing people. I mean, hello. But the other element that I think is interesting in a horrible way is think about how disorganized that thinking is that he somehow viewed these women not only as sex objects, but as essentially sexual servants or servants of services that he in his mind had sexualized, whether they were or not. And we, we do that to women of color in this country. And these were very vulnerable women. They, you know, what they're, they're just making it as first generation immigrants. Some of them probably don't speak English well. Um, So they're forced into jobs that who knows whether they enjoy these jobs or not, but there, there's a limited number of jobs available to them, of types of jobs. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that's interesting to me is, first of all, the terrible binary simplistic thinking that was yeah. present this week, you know, and you even saw in the media, was, were these or were these not racist crimes? And it's like, they were all of those things. Yeah. And the second thing that's interesting is Well, there are three things. The second thing that really struck struck me and many others, I mean, the Asian community in Atlanta is living in fear now. They're waiting to see, and in other areas too, will there be copycats? Will other people just decide it's open season? Somehow in this country, and then that gets into the whole gun culture issue, but this guy just went out and bought a gun and shot people, right? So who's to say that another person with disorganized thinking who is deeply mentally ill and struggling with whatever won't do the same thing. Um, and the third thing that was interesting for me is, so as an adoptee, as an Asian adoptee, believe it or not, there are a lot of Korean and Chinese adoptees who were raised in whiteness who still have not figured out that they're people of color. And it's very sad. Many of them are, um, they grew up in very conservative social environments. Their parents were extremely unwoke. And some of them, believe it or not, are politically conservative themselves because that's how they were raised. Mm -hmm. So they're already living in a very kind of strange form of denial. And then this comes along And for some of them, it's absolutely devastating, right? Because in their minds, their white adjacency will protect them and it won't. Mm -hmm. And um, this is something that those of us who are, I mean, I know people hate the word woke, but (laughs) those of us who are a little bit more woke are trying to convey to our brothers and sisters who are adoptees who aren't there yet, that we are having white insides does not protect us because what people will go after is our Asian outsides. Yeah. You know, someone once asked me in a different context about that. And I said, you know, I, she asked me about how Asian I feel. I said, you know, I carry my face everywhere I go. Like I can't leave it at home. (laughs) Leave my face at home, you know, walk out. And even though my 
identity is very complex and very layered. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really culturally Asian at all. Um, people see my face. Yeah. They literally judge me by my face and my body. And that's something that all transracial adoptees have to resolve for themselves because if they were raised by white people in white culture, they carry that. Now, as I navigate the world, nobody knows that my father was Norwegian American and my mother was German American. And, you know, we grew up with, you know, Swedish meatballs, right? They just see an Asian guy, that's it. Race is such a crazy thing because in white culture, the standard slogan is we don't see race or we don't see color. Everyone sees race, everyone sees color. And yet, as I like to say, white culture throws a complete um, suffocating blanket of silence over authentic discourse around these subjects. So most white people don't even know how to discuss them. They don't, it's, it's very frightening, right? I, I feel like I have run, I have spoken with people who, who I think would have appreciated me recognizing or acknowledging their ethnicity, their race, and then speaking of current issues, things like that, and finding those people that you were just speaking of who are so far assimilated and maybe that there's even a sense of denial or shame. I don't know, but it's like they don't want to be have their identities questioned or or to like step away from the, the white upbringing or the I don't know. It's like that assimilation where it's yeah, it's white they, adjacency. Okay, okay. And one of the elements of that is the mistaken notion that if you get really, really, really close to the white people, you'll be kind of like protected because you're not with those other people of color of your race. Um, You know this, we have a racial hierarchy in our country and in our society. And there are people who, and I will tell you one of the most interesting things, white people rarely have access to this. But when we people of color talk among ourselves, where there are no white people around, we let our hair down. Mm-hmm. Well, I have no hair, but I let it down anyway. <laughs> and our conversations are fascinating, right? We POC see that. You know, we see someone, I guess I'm going to name names, we see someone like a Candace Owens yeah. who loves her white adjacency because it brings her close to power and she makes money too. And in her case, it's a really awful thing because she actively uses herself to oppress her black brothers and sisters. And black people and people of color see that, (laughs) you know, that they totally see it. Yeah. But because we have a racial hierarchy in this country, there's still going to be benefits. Um, there are going to be benefits for throwing your entire race under the bus. 
kind of tying together what you spoke about at the beginning, this, this element of, you know, when you identify yourself as a Korean adoptee and how people will almost start treating you like a child because of that in this condescending way. The seeing is how this criminal went and shot these Asian women because they're a problem or, and then the way that the police or people in the media, like then almost dehumanize the victims and humanize the criminal. He had a really bad day. Oh, that was just awful when that sheriff stepped in. He said that. I mean, I was so horrified that I was almost literally breathless for a moment. I just didn't even, I almost couldn't react. But again, look at how he sat in a place of privilege and power, Mm -hmm. right? That sheriff's deputy, captain of the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department. It's so easy to dehumanize people of color in the society. They're always somehow responsible for crimes against them, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen that so many times, oh my gosh. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why the murder of George Floyd will be seen as a moment of incredible importance in our history because it was so horrific that no one could deny the horror. And it forced uh, a discussion. Well, discussion is a, a little elevated a word. I mean, it, it forced people to pay attention anyway. Um, wake up. And, and yeah, to wake up. And it galvanized people of color and progressive people in this country because it, it was just so horrific. And I've been talking in the last several days with friends about this. The, the thing about this mass murder in Atlanta is that we have been experiencing anti-Asian violence and aggression for a while now. Mm-hmm. I mean, a rising violence and aggression. Until this truly horrific thing happened, it just wasn't being covered adequately. There would be little segments on TV, a couple of articles here and there. Meanwhile, it's happening every single day. They just, um, the latest statistic was that in in this past year, there have been 3,800 reported incidents of violence against Asian Americans. And one of the things that's noted, and I I absolutely agree with this, that number is way, you know, it's way underreported. Yeah. Most Asian immigrants who don't speak English well and are in immigrant communities, some of them are not citizens yet. Some are documented, some aren't, even those who are documented, they're very afraid. I mean, you know, and so the number of incidents is many times that. And I know Asian people, just a couple of days ago, one of my Korean adoptee friends who I know personally and I, I don't want to say where she is because she may, might not want this to be, you know, known. Uh, and I won't, won't say her name, but she was, uh, this happened on uh, Friday. And she was at a stoplight and a bunch of white men verbally harassed her. You know, they were in the car next to hers mm-hmm. and then drove off. And she said, she posted about it on Facebook. She was just 
really devastated by it. And she thought of shouting back, but she's one Asian woman in a car and this car full of big white men. I think what really is top of mind for many Asian Americans in particular right now is we're easy targets. There is nothing, I'm so fortunate in where I live that the chances are quite small that I would be the target of regression. It could happen, but the chances are small. But many people I know are living in areas where the chances are very high. I know an Asian adoptee who, and again, I won't say exactly where she is, but she's living in a rural area outside a smaller town. Um, she actually lives almost out in the country. And uh, in the past year, things have gotten very, very bad for her. The verbal harassment. Um, and then she became an activist with the Black Lives Matter group in her town. Mm -hmm. And so she's gotten death threats. Wow. And she's had to change her number. And so she goes out only at night, except she goes to work. But she, so a few months ago, she went to get, get gas at the gas station at night. And she's alone and she's gassing up her car. And someone's screaming about her, you know, she needs to go back to China and calling her racial slurs. And there's this feeling among many Asians Who's going to be next? Yeah. Um, we're so visible. And in communities that are mostly white or communities with very identifiable immigrant enclaves, you know, it's, we're vulnerable. I think Asian Americans are feeling uh, frightened and devastated right now. Mm -hmm. And um, we just need to, we need to recognize that this is a thing. In an open society, how do you protect people from this? And it's sad because there, is, there has been just this incredible upsurge in the open expression of racism and bigotry of all kinds. It's really, I, I'm just astonished there are some white people while well, they're probably watching Fox News and this is why, but who are seem completely unaware of this. Oh, what? What's happening? And it's like it's happening to all um, groups of color in this country. Yeah. It's happening to all LGBT people. Yeah. It's you know, it's even happening to disabled people, it's happening to non-Christian people. And there is this sense of rage among the most racist people in this country because most of our society is becoming more progressive. But those of us who are people of color need allyship and support from white people. Yes. And there's so many ways you can do it. Okay, so let's talk about that because I just, you know, it's just, I've, I've said like, as a breast cancer patient, I hate it when people like go all gung-ho for pink in October, but then come in nothing all year long. Like, are you checking your breasts? Like, are you actively trying to stay healthy? You know, I want to know that you care about this all year round. So right. They wear a little pink ribbon for a month and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
Or, you know, after George Floyd died, you make your profile picture a black square for a day. Check. Yeah. I'm not a racist. I can go yeah. on as normal. That is not okay. And yeah. so, <laughs> but you know, that's called virtue signaling, right? Virtue signaling. I've seen that term. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love sharing vocabulary. It's very fun. Anyway, so what can people do? Yeah. Here's, okay. here's something that I hope everyone who views this will take away. Two things. One, everyone can do something. Everyone, everyone. can do something. And two, when people hear the call, when they hear, oh, you can do something, they think, oh, well, I have to like lead a march of 3 million people. And, you know, we have to do a campaign that involves raising. No, you start very, very, very small. Talk to your racist relatives, Mm -hmm. you know, um, challenge when someone says something in your presence, Mm -hmm. challenge it. I mean, find a way to do it so that they can. Mm -hmm. Right. Part of the problem with white culture is that, as I mentioned before, I I call it the uh, the suffocating blanket of silence around Mm -hmm. authentic discourse around race. And so, and I was raised in white culture too. So I was raised the same way as you were to be very quiet. You know, you never discuss these things. It's impolite. So smash that, (laughs) right? When racist Ed Hetty says, you know, those blacks or whatever, mm-hmm. say, Ed Hetty, you say, Ed Hetty, why did you say that? Mm-hmm. And then she'll say, well, you know what I mean. And you'll say, well, actually, I don't know what you mean. What, what do you mean? And then try to engage Ed Hetty in a way that you push her forward a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Every single person I know has the opportunity through daily conversation and interactions to do something from the tiniest gesture. You know, you mentioned the, you know, like the black square for one day. I do think now there's a difference between virtue signaling and using symbology when you can to promote something good. Do wear a Black Lives Matter pen. And then... When you're asked about it, explain why you're doing it, right? Not just, oh, well, this is kind of a decoration. (laughs) Um, Challenge racism. Learn about racism, white privilege, white fragility. Every single person, every single white person knows people they can work on. Um, One of my white friends is a middle-aged white woman who is in a very conservative right-wing community. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how she's, she tries to drip on people. Yeah. Meaning she just, even her sister has a lot of issues. So we talk about it. She drips on her sister. Mm-hmm. And she, she tries to get her to see certain things. And they've had, a lot, they've had tension. See, that's the whole thing too, right? White people are deeply afraid to challenge any other white people. And the reality is that we people of color can't do this alone. Right. We need white people to help us. I just had a conversation this morning with a good friend who's an adult transracial adoptee. And we were talking about the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. 
By the way, one thing you could do is that can be your little Christmas gift to people. <laughs> Just send them white fragility, right? Yeah. Like buy 15 copies and send it to your, send it to Aunt Hetty, right? <laughs> um, and I was saying to my friend and she agreed with me. I said, a white person had to write that book. Yeah. You know, people of color can write about race, racism, white privilege forever. And the number of white people who will read those books will be three or four, you know, a few will, but it, those are gonna be the people who are already converted, right? It needed a white person who, and by the way, Robin D'Angelo had sat with people for years. So she knew what she was doing and it's a very well-written book, but it, what was required was a white person who could talk to other white people. Yeah. And even so, I tell people about the difference between the experiences of POC reading that book and white people. Would you like to hear about this? It's kind of funny. Sure. So every person of color I know who's read that book, and I think it's terrific. I love it. I recommend it to everyone. So here's, a, I kind of enact this. I say, okay, I'm reading page 68. Mm -hmm. Page 68, okay. Mm -hmm. Page 69, okay. Mm -hmm. Page 70, oh yeah, I knew that, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Every white person I know who's read it, page 68. Oh my God. What? <laughs> oh my God. Page 70. Oh my God. No, and, yeah. And and that's even with people who are really wanting to learn. Yeah. And so that's the value of that book, right? Like if 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 it's so shocking to white people. Yeah. And yet literally every person of color, like I say, I think it's an extremely valuable book. Yeah. But there is not a single sentence in that book that I have not lived. So I love kind of enacting that, right? Like the difference because it, it shows how in our culture, white people who grew up in white culture through no fault of their own. I mean, this is what our culture has been like, have been trained yeah. to never speak of race, have been trained to not look at race, yeah. although everyone's looking at it, but they're not looking at it, yeah. right? You don't mention it. Yeah, you never talk about it. That's so impolite. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done in our society. And much of it is not at that high level of activism and advocacy, which is incredibly important. But I think what a lot of people do, and they end up kind of excusing themselves, is they say, oh, well, I can't fly to Washington and march in a march and you know organize a Senate campaign. Well, some people can't, but you can talk to Aunt Hattie. Yeah. You know, and if you, if your grocery store has a display that regardless of what the intent is, the, the impact is racist. You can go to the manager of the store and say, I noticed you did this thing and I, that's just offensive. Can we do something about it? Yeah. You can, the endless opportunities in schools, my gosh, the stories we hear in our TAF group about <laughs> things happening in schools. And everyone can start at that simple level there there are literally i can guarantee you every single white person i know 
has opportunities probably on a weekly basis to do something. It can be, it literally can be very small. It literally can just be taking someone aside and saying, you know, you know, Susie, I just would like to just talk to you for three minutes about something that just happened. Mm -hmm. And I hope you can hear me out and you can understand. I just want to share this with you. And then you, you say your thing. And then Susie says, well, actually I completely disagree or whatever, but I mean, you can, you can witness and you can be an ally to people of color. Uh, Everyone can do that. After George Floyd was murdered, I saw little like almost, uh, I don't, I don't know, like an accountability list. It was like, okay, you know, white lady, me, like name a black author you read. Like what, what black TV shows do you watch? Like which, you know, who in your life, what name a friend you can call that's a person of color. And, you know, all of a sudden I was like, oh crap, you almost didn't realize how freaking white you are. (laughs) Well, and like, here's another example. Um, All of us who are on Facebook, I mean, did you know there's more than a billion people on Facebook? That's a lot of people. Um, Post like a lot of people say, well, I can't post anything political. Don't post anything political then. Mm-hmm. Cultural blogs from the Grio mm-hmm. and Atlanta Black Star and The Root. Yeah. Um, post um, blogs by people of color just about their lived personal experience, yeah. literally. You know, like I'm a black woman and this is why I have felt silenced. Uh, you know, post blogs like that post, um, even short travelogues, like let's go to, um, let's go to Watts and see what people have to say about things, right? Um, One of the things that we people of color see very clearly is the tremendous, even now in 2021, the tremendous social segregation in this country. it's a million times better than it was when I was a child, but we still got a long road ahead. And what I see among most white people on Facebook on their pages is wait for it. Whiteness, (laughs) right? Like, like they don't post anything that isn't related to white people. They don't post anything cultural. They're just amazing. And, and when I say related to people of color, we got a lot of colors in our rainbow, you know, post something by a Latina, you know, post something by someone from the Punjab, like this wonderful uh, new dancing that they're, that they're all doing. Um, I am reading the most amazing book. I once was you by Maria Inahosa Mm -hmm. from NPR. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, Kate. It's the most amazing book. You've got to read it. And I relate so strongly to her story being the only one so often and having to figure out having to navigate that right like she tells a story about how when she first she her interaction with NPR is very uh multifaceted she had different internships and then she had short jobs and so eventually she created Latino USA but there were a lot of previous chapters and when she started her internship she went up to the only senior person of color in New York 
yeah. uh, a black woman and just said, can I take you out to lunch? Wow. And that woman instantly chose to be her mentor. And that's how we help each other. You know, post, uh, read Maria Inahosa's book and post an interview with her about it on yep. your page, right? Yeah. And share things that kind of poke a little bit at people. You know, a lot of times, because believe me, I live, I've lived with white people my whole life. A lot of times white people are very fragile and it's very hard to break through and they immediately become defensive. So just post little things that yeah. kind of make people think a little bit and go, oh, wow, I've never thought about that. It's, it's an astonishing moment right now in our history because it yeah. feels like a, a nexus point or something. It feels like either we're going to tip into a better world or one that's not so good. We have to collectively confront both our racist past and most of all our racist present. Yeah. And we have to somehow summon the better angels and people while also challenging them, if that makes sense. We, you know, part of the suffocating blanket of silence in white culture has to do with never rocking the boat, yeah. never challenging anything, and above all, never speaking out in silence. Like, the situation that happened a few weeks ago with Oprah's interview with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, so many people misunderstood that too. I was like, oh my gosh. You know, they, they, they were focusing on the respect for the British royal family, which we kind of dissed in 1776. Uh, and I was like, look, here's a chance to talk about what matters. Yeah. And they're trying to do that. You know, and just to give you one example of what I found fascinating, some people just got completely hung up on one tiny element of that interview. When Meghan Markle talked about a conversation that Harry had had with somebody about how dark Archie's skin would be when he was born, Oprah said, what? Yeah. And a lot of people got really hung up on that. Like, was she really surprised? Well, guess what? She wasn't surprised. What she was doing there in a kind of a theatrical way yeah. was very important. She was opening a door and she was facilitating. She knew, I mean, they, at the beginning of the interview, she said, nobody knows what we're going to say, but I kind of think they did. But in any case, she took that moment and she, it was, it was like, you know, floodlight. Now go ahead yeah. and tell us, right? And what Meghan Markle did in that moment was to try to get people to understand what race and racism are. They're not all, I mean, sometimes they're violent attacks on people, yeah. but a lot of times... Racism is, it can be a subtle thing, you know? Yeah. And she was trying to help people understand that people are still 
not really thinking clearly about this, you know, and it, and she opened up, I mean, we've had weeks now, both in the UK and the US, and there's a ton of racism in the UK. I know that I've seen it personally. Uh, again, a teaching moment. They're trying to create a teaching moment. That's what that was. And it's amazing because one of the things I posted, again, this goes back to what you can do, right? So I looked for articles about Black Britons speaking out. And of course, I found them instantly. And I posted this great article from one of the British newspapers. And they interviewed Black British women activists and bloggers. And they said, you know, this is a great moment for us. Yes. Because finally, we're talking about this. It's very difficult to talk about racism in the UK. I wish people would just start expanding their world. Um, and I know some people won't like me to say it, but could you turn off Dancing with the Stars for one hour yeah. and educate yourself? You know, yes. Now I'm going to get hate mail. You hate Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> I'm not really a fan, but I'm just using an example, you know. Get, you it's say, basically get out of your comfort zone, you know. It's like yeah. eat some vegetables rather than the Cheetos. Like really dive exactly. into what's good and what's truth and real. Yeah, that's exactly, Kate. And I, you know, human nature is a funny thing. <laughs> there are good things built into human nature and bad things. And one of the bad things built into human nature is the desire to kind of sit on the couch eating potato chips, right? Or whatever anyone's equivalent is. We are at this, we're in this incredible moment, not only in this country, but in our global culture. I mean, I follow developments particularly in Europe and Latin America, but I try to be aware of what's going on in the world in general. There's a lot going on everywhere, like a lot. And we have an opportunity as a global society to move forward. That's in my teensy weensy tiny way, I'm just trying to help people, you know, anyone who will listen to see that and to you can be a part of change at the smallest uh, dimension. Yeah. You know, I always tell my daughter, who's 19 now, um, there's this kind of cosmic ledger of society. And you can, every individual at any moment can add to the plus or the minus side of ledger. Um, and I want to add to the plus side. I want us to have a better world. I want my child, I want all children to have a better world. And I can say that very concretely that in many ways, we are much better off in 2021 than when I came to this country in 1961. I mean, I, I think most people would agree with that. We're doing some things right. Yeah. Anyway. We're a lot farther than where we used to be. Yeah. And sometimes when you're on the way to something really good, there's going to be bumps and pain along the way. It's like childbirth. You know, you have to go through the pain to get the end result. But I do Absolutely. agree with you. I feel like we are at a super pivotal time and as painful and as awkward and horrific as it is, 
I'm so confident in each new generation. And yeah. I, you probably see it Absolutely. in your daughter. I see it in my kids. I do. And they I do. are far more bold and confident in their beliefs because through social media and things like that, they see a lot more than I ever saw growing up. And they're growing up and have been growing up in a situation which is far advanced from what we grew up in. And so, um, yeah, it's different now and that's good. So yeah, well, it's been so nice to dialogue with you. Kate. I love it so much. I mean, last time we spoke on the phone, it was at least an hour. And now, you know, our second date, our second conversation, almost two hours. But, um, and I just know again, whenever we talk again, it'll be another good solid conversation. Well, I'm honored that you invited me and um, any way that I can support you, what you're doing is terrific. And um, I wish everyone would be doing something like it. Oh, thank you. I just, like you said, I think a lot of times white people are like, what can we do? And I can't always be at the marches and we can write letters to our congressman. We can amplify voices of color. We can ask questions. We can read books and we can get in the way. And what I've found, especially this week, is we can reach out to our Asian American friends and say, hey, I want you to know that whatever you're feeling, I care about you. Are you okay? Yeah. You know, what's wonderful. I've had numerous people reach out to me mm-hmm. uh, in private messages on Facebook, just saying, are you okay? And um, that's been wonderful. I mean, there's nothing, there's no way that I could be offended by that. I felt buoyed up by it and um, we can all support each other. You know, I support all of my, brothers and sisters of color. When something happens to black communities, I make sure my black friends know it. Yeah. Something happens to Latinx communities, I make sure that my friends know it. And we can all support each other. We can all do something. So what you're doing is wonderful. I, I literally tell people, do something, right? Like, and, and again, do something, maybe just having a conversation with Aunt Hattie. You know, and I have had so many great encounters with people who have told me, you know, thanks to being in the adoption groups or thanks to being in some other group or reading something, you know, I I had a conversation with my racist uncle or I, um, I, you know, I saw something that was really, really offensive. Uh, that was happening in our school and I spoke up and I, and I, and we can all, um, people should be unafraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they should also, one last thing I'll say, be unafraid of making mistakes. Everyone will make mistakes. Absolutely. It's how you learn. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as you know, I'm, really into learning languages <laughs> and the absolute key in learning a foreign language is you plunge in and you make mistakes and that's how you learn a lot of the vocabulary i never i'll never forget because i said the wrong thing and was politely corrected and and yeah. that's has stuck in my mind forever so don't be afraid to make mistakes um 
and don't be, you know, allies make mistakes. Absolutely. And yeah, and it's okay. And your friends of color will quietly take you aside, <laughs> you know, and yeah. say, you know, that one thing that you did was not the greatest thing. And let me explain why. And if you're open to it and you have some humility about it, yeah. become an even greater ally. And we need allies. We need everyone right now. Yeah. It's such a crucial thing. And literally every single thing that any person can do will make a difference right now. Beautiful. So perfectly said. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And I know for a fact that you are always welcome to have more friends on your Facebook. I've sent yes. lots of people your way and I know it makes your day. Um, <laughs> to be I'm always friend. open to new friends. I, I will tell you, I keep my page progresses only um, because I just, want to create a safe space for us mm -hmm. and honestly it's exhausting to argue with racist people so i just don't want them on my page but anyone who is a goodwill um yeah. i absolutely welcome and certainly any friend of yours is a friend of mine oh, thank you um it's just so far i'm just it's the best thing almost you know besides my family it's the most valuable experience is is learning to see the world outside of myself. So thank you. It's a great thing. We're all on journeys, right? We are all on journeys. Honored to be on it with you. Thank you for being a friend. And we'll talk you to you again soon. Thank you. Bye, Mark. Thank you everyone for listening in. If you are a part of the transracial adoptive triad as an adoptee, a birth parent, or an adoptive parent, and would like to check out Mark's transracial adoption perspectives group, feel free to send a join request to facebook.com slash groups slash transracial perspectives. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find me and follow along at Kate Lundquist on Instagram and search for Kate Had Me Meet on Facebook. Sharing, subscribing, and leaving reviews helps me know there are people out there listening. Your messages make my day and serve as a good sign to keep going and keep introducing you to these beautiful people. New episodes and new friends each Friday. Remember that everyone has a story and after listening today, you can now say, Kate Had Me Meet Mark Haglund. May your life be better and richer for it.